John chapter 1 is where we are this morning, if you'd make your way there. And then uh, this evening, we'll be back in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 24, almost done with that book. We'll finish it in the next few weeks. This is the story of the king who didn't like God's word, and so he ripped it up and thought that that would mean it wouldn't apply to him. And we'll see how that turned out tonight. But I can't help but think there's a lot of people in our world today who have that similar attitude towards scripture, that I don't believe in the Bible. Uh, I don't look at it. I ignore it. Therefore, it doesn't apply to me. And we'll see how, how that works out tonight. Today, to set our mind on the Lord's table, we're going to look at John 1, verse 16. One verse, let me read it for you. John writes, and from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. I have here in my hands a, a box, a very pretty box, I might add, found in my office. Inside of it is a, is a gift. Uh, it's a, something that was given to me. Um, but before I open it and, and show you what I received, I have a question for you. Who made what's in this box? Now, you don't know the specifics of what's in it, but uh, you can probably come up with the right answer. Who, what's the best answer for who made what's in this box? I heard somebody, maybe it's just my hearing. Over there, I heard somebody say God made it. Is that true? Did somebody over there say that? Yes, sweet, okay, somebody, somebody agrees. Uh, God made what's in the box. Now, we don't know specifically what's in here, but you understand that the, God made the material of the world, and if there's atoms and molecules involved, that comes from God. And if there's human creativity involved, God made people in such a way they could design pretty things and cool things. And it's an expansive statement. If something is in the world, God made it. Now, God uses means to make things. He doesn't make everything directly. But he does make everything as the, as the chief cause. He speaks the world into existence and all the molecules and matter and motion in the world comes from him. And so let's open the box here. And what we find in here is a coaster that says blessed. If you recall a few weeks ago, I poked a little fun at the word blessed becoming, you know, hashtag blessed becoming, uh, you know, uh, too prolific in our culture. And so some of you, between one and five of you, thought it was a good idea to buy some of these and put them in my office. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly how many of you did it. Between one and five, as I said. Uh, the suspects are still at large. I asked the bookstore for help in identifying the perps, but they were closed-lipped over there. So they value your privacy, or they were in on it. I'm not really sure. So as we look at this, the question is, did God make this? And the answer is yes. You need to make it directly. A company uh, called P. Graham Dunn in Delton, Ohio, which is apparently a place, uh, they, they made this. And there's the clay that was made. You know, God, of course, made the clay, and he made the human creativity that could craft this and, and seal it. And he made the world with the commerce that people buy and sell things like this. And of course, God makes blessings. So in just about every stretch of the way, uh, every way you can think about it, God made this, right? So what if you were, or any person were, to turn around and worship this and begin to, to venerate this, to commit the sin of idolatry? At that point, is it fair to say that God still made this? And the answer is yes, God still made this, but God does not make sin, 
And so there has to be a distinction between the this and the idol worship. So this comes from God, but you're turning it into sinful purposes. That comes from you. You do that. If the object in this I mean, were uh, something that would cause you to covet or to lust or to be proud or to be arrogant or to, to worship it, idolatry, know that all of those responses are from your heart, not from God. So the things in this world come from God in a general sense, but in as much as something is sinful, the sin does not come from God. The sin is manufactured by your own heart. So in other words, if this box was empty, you, you couldn't say that all that was in it was sin. There's no way to do that. There's no sin inside this box. Sin comes from your heart, not from God. And that, by the way, is a profound insight into the nature of human beings. I mean, what does our heart create? Our heart often creates sin. That's what kind of people we are. Our hearts generate sin. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth. You don't be afraid to say the word speaks. Out of the overflow of the mouth, the heart. Yeah. And so you get a window into what kind of person you are by, by what's overflowing out of you. And it is sobering to say that because of our hearts, we often generate sin. Now, the flip side of that, if I were to shake you up in, you know, like a soda and crack you open, what sprays out of you is often going to be sin. But the flip side of that, if I were to take a God, and for the sake of the comparison here, shake God up and crack him open, what comes out of him? It's not sin. What comes out of him, verse 16 says, is grace after grace after grace. What your heart generates is sin. What God's heart generates is grace. It's a sobering fact to look at your heart and see what kind of person you are, namely a sinful person. What a transformative fact or transformative realization to understand that when you look at God and you see what his heart is like, his heart creates grace. He's a gracious God. When he speaks, out comes grace. When he declares things, they're graceful declarations. God is a God of life. He's a God of light. He's a God of love. He's a God of grace. And that's what happens when you get a window into God's heart. Now, the John 1, we've been going through in and out of John 1 on communion Sundays for the past few years. So let me kind of summarize here. The main thing we've learned so far in John 1 is that God is a community of God. God communicates He's always talking. He always has something to say. So much so that John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In the author John's mind here, if you were to break God down to one word, that word could very well be word. God communicates. That's who he is by nature. He likes to talk. And what is he communicating? He's communicating the knowledge of himself. God is always talking about himself. If you're always talking about yourself, that makes you arrogant. <laughs> but God is the highest and greatest and most exalted being in the universe, so it makes sense that he would always be talking about himself. And this is true even before creation. Before he created the world, he was talking about himself. To whom? To himself. 
And here's your nature of the Trinity, that the Father is always speaking to the Son about himself. The Son is always hearing and receiving and responding about himself. And the Holy Spirit demonstrates the love that the Father and the Son have between the two of them. There's an affection between the two of them. And so between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, through all eternity past, there is constant communication, constant love within the Trinity. God is a communicating God and he's communicating himself, his own character, his own nature, his own light, his own life. God has life in and of himself. And so as he's talking, he's communicating that life that he has. That's what's inside of God. And that's what breaks into the world when God creates the world. It's as if God can't contain himself anymore and the nature and the character and the attributes and the light and the the love and the life that's inside of God, it cannot be contained inside of him any longer and it bursts into the world. This word fullness here means, you know, in, in English, full is just, you know, to the very tippity top. If you have kids, they might like to fill their, their milk cup all the way until it's full to the very tippity top. And one more drop, and they think it'll spill over. No, oh, one more drop. It's not full yet. One more drop. You know, you put gas in your gas tank. You fill it up, and then it, it goes all the way up. And once the, the liquid backs up to the pump, the pump shuts off, so it doesn't overflow. But that's not what this Greek word fullness means. This Greek word fullness means overflowing. The gas equivalent would be you you pour until the gas sprays out. Oh, now it's full. Or you pour the milk until it it runs over, your cup runs over. Oh, now it's full. That's this this Greek model here. And the idea here is that God has fullness. He's all of God's character and all of God's attributes. It's full within the Trinity. But now at some point, it overflows and it bursts into the world. Like a fountain springs up from the ground, the very character and nature and attributes and being of God bursts into the world. In fact, you could say it differently. God creates the world so that it can have something to burst into. Why did God create the world? Well, to tell you about himself, to share himself with you, to communicate with himself. That word fullness, it's the word that's used in Galatians chapter four. For in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. It's this idea that that God contained the times and directed human history and directed the, the course of human affairs until he couldn't hold himself out of it any longer. He couldn't keep the savior back any longer. It was the right time. It was the perfect time. The time had filled up and it ran into the time of Christ. You might tell a child, I can think of a particular seven year old I have in mind who's not in this worship service right now. You might say, contain yourself. And what's that child doing when you say that? Well, in my case, literally bouncing off the walls, <laughs> figuring out how to climb up the walls and bounce across the walls and you know, runs into all kinds of people, sisters and tables and spills things. It's just bouncing around and you say, contain yourself. <laughs> Keep your hands <laughs> and your mouth and your feet and your energy to yourself. <laughs> and the child might say, dad, I can't contain myself. I can't keep it in. (laughs) This is what happens with with God. I've left the child here, but don't tell her this because this would be a great theological argument against (laughs) (laughs) self-control. Dad, I can't contain myself. I can't contain myself. I've got so much energy, it's got to come out. This is what's happening with, with God. He can no longer contain himself. 
Who he is is bursting into the world. It's his fullness. It's as if he's been shaken up and cracked open and is now bursting into the world. This is probably my favorite biblical uh, metaphor or analogy for God, and that's the analogy of the fountain. God calls himself a fountain. It's as if he can't contain himself. He's a fountain of life to the world, a fountain of light to the world, a fountain of grace to the world. And what a great word picture that is. You know, God doesn't have a, a, a vessel, but he has a being. God's being contains his nature and contains his attributes. But at some point, it just bursts into the world. Jonathan Edwards has a very long quote about this. I'll put the quote on the screen. I'm sure, no, it's a small font, but you guys can, can read it. You're the 11 o'clock crowd. Your eyes are like eagles here. Jonathan Edwards, 1700s, writes this. And I'll pause as we go through it to, to update the language here. But Edwards writes, thus it is fit, or it's fitting, that since there's an infinite fountain of light and knowledge, that this light should shine forth in beams of communicated knowledge and understanding. What he means by that is God has an infinite source of light and knowledge that he's sharing with himself. But it's fitting that after, after a while, it's gonna burst into us. And when you see God's light, what do you see in it? Well, you see God. When you see God's knowledge, what do you learn from it? Well, you learn about God. You understand him. And, Edwards writes, as there is an infinite fountain of holiness, moral excellence, and beauty, that so it should flow out in communicated holiness. That God's reservoir, so to speak, is filled with holiness, his glory, and his attributes. They're beautiful. They're morally excellent and they're beautiful and they flow into the world like a fountain and it's fitting that you should learn from that God's holiness. You should learn from it his moral excellence. You should marvel at how beautiful God is. And that, Edwards goes on, as there is an infinite fullness of joy and happiness, so these should have emanation. Emanation is a fancy word for like radiation or like the cartoon character with the lines that goes off of them. They're emanating themselves. Their affections are, are visible. That's what Edwards means here, that God's fountain is filled with joy and happiness, and so it makes sense that God's joy should emanate to us. You stick your hands next to a fire, the heat emanates to you. You stick your hands next to the fountain of God's glory, his, his beauty and his holiness should emanate to you. His joy and his happiness should come to you. They have an emanation and become a fountain flowing out in abundant streams. You know, this is not a trickle of God's attributes into the world. It's not a trickle of God's joy, like God's joy is drip, drip, drip. No, it's a fountain. It's abundant streams, like beams from the sun. This is the diffusive disposition. Diffusive disposition. That's a phrase you've never used before. <laughs> diffusive, diffusive is when light hits like a crystal, and the, light, the beam of light hits the crystal and the crystal splits it up into the spectrum. It diffuses the light into the, the rainbow on your wall. Or I have a nozzle on one of my hoses and the water goes into the nozzle and it comes out in a bunch of different uh, streams all over the place. The water is diffused. Edward says that God has a diffusive disposition. In other words, God is a disposition, what he's prone to do. God is prone to diffuse himself. God is prone to display himself. God is prone to spread himself out to us. Again, if you always talk about yourself, don't use this excuse. Don't say, oh, I always talk about myself, but you have to understand, I have a diffusive disposition. 
No, you're just arrogant. (laughs) But God has a diffusive disposition. He displays himself. And because of that, he's excited. Look at this Edwards phrase. God is excited to give creatures existence. God is stoked that he can make us to delight in who he is. Now that's not just fancy Jonathan Edwards' 1700s writing. This is a biblical motif. This is why the Bible describes God as a fountain. Psalm 36, verse nine, for example. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. God is a fountain of life. In other words, life comes from God. You cannot create life yourself. You have borrowed life. God is a fountain of life. And in your light, the psalmist says, we see light. When you look at the light that comes from God, what you see is God. Proverbs 10, verse 11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. We said this earlier, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And this is true on a human level. A nice person says nice things. A mean person says mean things. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. If you have eternal life given to you by God, the things that come out of you should be righteous things. And it's just, it's just a, you know, the proverb Solomon here just means a basic principle, that godly people say godly things, okay? So there's that greater or argument from the lesser to the greater. If godly people say godly things, now let's talk about God. What kind of things does he say? <laughs> His words give life. He speaks the universe into existence. That's why the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. The fear of Yahweh is a fountain of life, Proverbs 14, 27 says. You start with God's fear, and when you fear God, you become a fountain of life that God has given you. His life has come into you. Jeremiah 2, verse 13, one of my favorite verses about this this concept. God says, my people have committed two evils. First, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, that God wants to give people eternal life. He wants to give people himself, but his people have have forsaken that fountain. They've walked away from the ever-running fountain. And instead, they hew for themselves broken cisterns, cisterns that cannot even hold water. That's what sin does. It can't even expose you to God. It just deprives you. Whereas God is the fountain of living waters. Joel 3, verse 18. In that day, God says, a fountain will come forth from the house of Yahweh. Speaking of the second coming of Christ. When he comes back to set up his kingdom on earth, he'll build a fountain in Israel. And that fountain will give life to the world. In other words, Jesus will reign on the earth and establish his kingdom. And it will be a kingdom of light and of life and of love because the fountain is here. This image of a fountain means that God loves to share himself. There is no way to get salvation or life or grace except from God. You can't access him on your own. Listen, if you had to make your own eternal life or your own righteousness or your own grace, you would be in a desert, my friends. Can you make grace? I mean, we have a learned grace. God has been gracious to us so we can be gracious to others, but we can't manufacture our own grace. You can't make grace and put it in a box, market it, package it, shrink wrap it, distribute it, sell it. You'd make a killing, but you can't do it. But God is a fountain of grace. He's a fountain of grace. 
We can't make grace. You could no soon manufacture grace or eternal life. Then you could teach a dog to fly. Or that you could teach a brick to swim. Something about bricks, they want to go down in water. Something about dogs, they want to stay more or less in the ground. <laughs> Something about people, we can't make grace. We can't make righteousness. We can't make life. But God gives us those things from himself. They're so natural to God. A fountain doesn't exert itself to make water. God does not exert himself to give eternal life. It just flows from him. So John's point here in chapter 1, verse 16, back in John, from his fullness, out of the character and the abundance and the nature and the being of God that's overflowing into the world, what comes out? Grace and grace and grace and grace and grace. (laughs) In other words, constant streams of grace. It's in God's character. And by the way, the nature of grace here is that you can't work for your salvation. You can't earn salvation. You can't buy this. Fountains don't need to sell their water. People like to bottle the water from fountains and sell it, but the fountain doesn't need the cash. You go to Yellowstone, you see Old Faithful. Old Faithful does not need your money. The park service might need your money and they'll require it, believe me. (laughs) But the geyser doesn't need the money. This is the concept of salvation by grace. God gives life. It flows to us and he gives it not through works, not through effort, but he gives it through his grace. Because that's his character. His character is not to sell himself. That's not in God's character. His character is not for you to earn your way with him. That's not in his character. His character is by grace to extend salvation to his children. That's what flows from him. Down the street, down Backlick, Springfield, Chick-fil-A. You know Chick-fil-A and Springfield? You guys all know what I'm talking about. Don't act like you don't. In that parking lot is a new taco store, Taco Bamba. I love that place. (laughs) You can drive down there, and if you want a tasty taco, do not go to Chick-fil-A. Go to the taco stand, right? Chick-fil-A does not sell tacos. It's not what they do. They don't have, it's not in their nature to sell you a taco. If you want a spicy chicken sandwich, don't go to the taco stand. (laughs) You'll be disappointed. Stand in line there and ask for the chicken sandwich. You won't get it there. You got to go over to Chick-fil-A. They're right next to each other. It's an easy mistake to make. If you want salvation by grace, you don't look for your own effort. You don't look for your own will. You don't look for yourself because grace doesn't come from you. If you want salvation from grace, you look to God because that's where grace comes from. If you want salvation by works and effort, then you don't look to the God of the Bible. (laughs) He He doesn't give that stuff out. He doesn't sell that. He is a God. Look at what John says in verse 16. He gives us grace upon grace. 
This is why we sing hymns like this. There is a fountain filled with blood. That's a kind of a graphic image, but the idea is that God is a fountain and he is distributing himself, but this fountain is filled with blood. In other words, the life that flows out of God only comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. What can wash away my sins? It's the blood of Christ. What can make me white as snow? The, the death of Christ. No other fount I know. There's no other fountain that can give you forgiveness of sins. Or we began our service today with the, the, the handbells doing Come Thou Fount. Just think about that song, Come Thou Fount. It's an imperative, come. You're commanding, come to me, the fountain. Come, you fountain. Come to me. And what does the fountain bring to you in the song? This, the fountain brings you grace. Grace will bind your heart like a fetter to keep you from wandering from God. He's the fountain of grace. Now, this verse starts, first word with and in the ESV or for in the NAS. It's this connective word from the context around it. And what's around here is that Moses brought the law and now Jesus is eclipsing the law and bringing grace. You see that in verse 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law itself was a form of grace, by the way. The law gives you what God wants from you and how to live. And that's a very gracious thing for God to do. God was under no requirements to reveal himself to you, of course. He does it naturally, but as he reveals himself through the law, it's a form of grace to you. But that grace will recede and it will be replaced by a different grace, namely the grace in the gospel. And that's why it's, verse 16 is very, it's translated weirdly in English and from his fullness, if you look at it, we've all received and there's a comma there. In both the ESV and the New American Standard, they put a comma after the word received, grace and grace. And that's not good English, right? <laughs> We've all received, comma, grace after grace, grace upon grace. What's that comma doing there? It's just trying to grapple with this. The Greek has a, a word there, chi is the Greek word. It means even. We've all received even grace after grace, one grace after another, literally. We've all, all received even this. It's like John is writing this. We've all received from his fullness. And he pauses and says, you got to get a load of this. <laughs> Look what the next word I'm going to write is. Check this out. If you shake God up and you crack him open, what sprays out, check this out. It is grace. After grace. The law was grace. It goes away. And Jesus brings grace. The grace of the law recedes. It's eclipsed by the bright light of the grace of Jesus Christ. The flower of the law fades and the, the, the bright uh, glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ exceeds it. And this is true in your life also, isn't it? You receive one grace in life, and as that grace ebbs, another grace flows. As one grace recedes, another grace rises. It's one grace after another grace after another grace. And that's why the, the, the Greek here says we've all received one grace after another. John the Baptist was looking forward to the death of Christ. John the Apostle, as he wrote this, was looking back at the death of Christ. The Moses was looking forward to the death of the Savior. We're looking backwards to the death of the Savior. All of this grace is arrows pointing you back to Jesus Christ. It's all grace from God. Through the law, through the gospel, it's just one grace after another. Now, God is an abundant grace giver. Every good and perfect gift comes from him and they're all gracious gifts. We don't deserve any of them. They're all gracious gifts. I call this sermon full of poverty, full of grace. And you might be wondering, where's the poverty part? 
I see the grace part. God is filled with grace. He's not running dry on grace. There's an abundance of grace in him. Where's the poverty? And I'm getting that from the word received there in the middle of verse 16. We've all received. How have you received God's grace? Now, if you have received God's grace, you've received it through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God delivers his grace personally to you. He doesn't phone this in. He doesn't give you grace from a distance. But he personally came, in the context of John 1 here, he personally comes to hand deliver grace. The Son of God takes on human flesh, adds to himself a human nature, comes to earth to hand deliver grace. He becomes grace incarnate. A verse, I think, that captures this very well. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, pause there. Ask yourself, do I know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, that's the point here in 2 Corinthians 8. Paul's assuming, yes, you do. Do you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you know the gospel, then you understand the rest of this verse. Though he was rich, for our sake he became poor. He's not talking financially here. He's saying Jesus, before the incarnation, had all the riches of heaven, the riches of of union and oneness with the Father. He had all the riches of being the sovereign over the the universe. He was the author of human history, worshipped by angels. He wasn't lacking anything before he created the world. He was filled with glory, and he and the Father were one in being, one in essence, one in glory, one in majesty, one in complexity, one in beauty. He was rich. And yet he became poor. He added to himself a human nature. He took on human flesh and came to earth. He was incarnated. Through his incarnation, humiliation, crucifixion, he's humbled. He lacked nothing, but now he will have to receive love and care from angels. The angels used to worship him. Now he's going to come to earth and the angels will have to serve him because he needs them. He'll have to learn to talk and to to walk and to read and to pray. He'll have to learn those things. He used to receive prayers. Now he's going to have to learn how to pray. Here's the biggest difference. He used to be the law giver. And now he's going to become the law keeper. This is what happens to him in his incarnation. Do you see the humiliation of that? Do you see the poverty in that? That though he was rich for our sake, he became poor. He went from exercising full power over the universe and sovereignty over human history and events to being the subject of history and the adverse recipient of those human events. No longer arrayed in light, now only arrayed in love. No longer exalted, now humbled. No longer displaying his obvious unity with the the Father, now having to explain and teach that he and the Father are one. This is his poverty. Why would he do that? To display and deliver his grace. By becoming the law keeper, he demonstrates his sinlessness, which means he's the acceptable sacrifice for sins. This is why it's a short walk from John 1.16 to the communion table. In his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. He didn't give us grace in a box. (laughs) He gave us grace in a body. He gave us grace in himself. 
the body of Jesus contained the glory of God, humbled and humiliated on the cross and resurrected to eternal life, light, and glory. What comes out of the character of God? Well, his son, firstly. What else comes out of the character of God? Through his son, grace upon grace upon grace. Lord, we're thankful that you are a gracious God. That your fountain never runs dry. There's never a shortage of grace with you. We're thankful that you have given us grace most of all through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that we're saved by, by your will. There's your will to show us grace and to cause the love of Christ to grow in our hearts. So we're thankful that we couldn't earn your favor, keep your love, except through your grace. We receive it with the open hands of our heart. We're grateful for it in the name of Christ. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.